And before I read that again, uh, just in case you're tuning in, this is not a prop for the sermon this morning. Um, it's for VBS, which starts tomorrow. So if that's something you would love to be a part of, uh, it begins at 9 o'clock on Monday. It's a great, great week, and I would encourage you to bring friends, invite your friends to come and be a part of that. It's a, it's a great time this week. As we read this text uh, this morning, moving through the book of Hebrews, we come to the strongest warning of eternal judgment and hell from the pastor uh, of this point, of this author of this letter. And we've heard a few uh, announcements or warnings up to this point, but this is really, this is really where he lays it all down. This is kind of the strongest uh, warning about the idea of apostasy, which should be falling away from the faith that he gives. As we read this, I want you also to note that he gives that two verses out of the entire section of scripture that we are going to read. And that's going to play into our understanding of what really the author, how, how I would say the author really wants to instill confidence in his audience who is uh, struggling under just difficult circumstances. So let's read this and then ask the Lord to teach us. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32. But recall the former, former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have, but of those who have faith and, and preserve their souls. Excuse me. Let us pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray and ask this morning that you would give us your grace. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears so that we could see and hear things otherwise we could not, and that you would create in our hearts fertile soil so that as the word goes out, such as the seed goes out into fertile soil, it would return a fruit and that we would leave here changed people. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. There's this wonderful scene in the Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne has decided to uh, play some music and then allow it to be played throughout the entire prison mall while everyone is out doing their morning walk. If you've seen the movie, you're familiar with the scene. If you haven't seen the movie... 
what happens when this music hits these speakers is that everyone, all the prisoners are out there, every single one of those prisoners stops what they're doing and completely turns and faces this little speaker that the camera pans to of which this music is coming out of. And for the moment, they are just statues. They are, they are glued to this music and what is coming out, uh, mesmerized by the beauty of what they hear. And then Morgan Freeman, who plays the character Red, narrates this while this is happening. He says, I don't know what those two Italian women were singing that day. Frankly, I don't want to know. I just imagine that they were singing about something so beautiful, it can't be expressed in words. And then he goes on to describe this beauty by saying that it made the walls of the prison dissolve away. As the prisoners forget where they are and who they forget who they are because of what they are listening to, the music that has so captivated them. As we come to this end of chapter 10 and we look at uh, the pastor's strongest warning on eternal judgment in hell for those who fall away. What I really want us to see this morning, at least what what, what he is he is doing is one look hell and judgment that is real. That is a real thing. And I'm not going to begin to try to stand up here and and try to figure out a way to make that sound softer to our modern ears, right? It's a real thing. But here's here's the other side of that coin. Grace is real too. Grace is real. Hell and judgment is real. But grace is real too. And the way that the Bible warns against hell is not by controlling you with fear. Unfortunately, you're not going to get a hell and brimstone, you know, sermon from me this morning where I'm going to essentially shame you into believing the gospel. That is not the approach here uh, of, of the pastor either to try to control you by fear. But he does something different. He, he wants to win you over with something so beautiful, something so um, you know, something that just makes you stand in awe and literally causes as it were, the walls to just disappear in your life. That is that you cannot begin to look away from what it is that you're staring at. And in this text, the author, he, it's not two Italian women that he, you know, that it is that we are beginning to look at and, and, and just in awe and we can't look away. It's something far more beautiful than that. It's Jesus. It is the face of Jesus himself. That he is longing his people to look at and to see in the midst of their circumstances. That when you see what he has done for you, remember chapters 8 and 9 and 10, the blood of Jesus that he has graciously given to you. When you begin to see those things, that is the beauty that he is drawing his audience to and and hopes that they will not be able to look away because it is so, so fair. We would call this grace because this is the unconditional love of God. And this is what ultimately gives us strength to endure any type of circumstance. St. Augustine in his book, City of God, says this, What grace is meant to do is to help people not to escape their sufferings, but to bear them a stout heart with a fortitude that finds its strength in faith. And that's what we're going to see this morning. I want us to look at three things as we contemplate this idea of heaven and hell. That is the reality of judgment the reality of grace, and then on a more practical side, what do we do? What do we do? Okay, the reality of judgment, the reality of grace, and then what do we do? <clears throat> when I hear people talk about the teaching of judgment or uh, even hell, 
from the Bible, I often hear something like this. Well, hell and judgment, that is something uh, that we hear a lot about in the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament God. Sometimes you hear that. And, you know, the New Testament, though, is completely different. New Testament, that is, that is forgiveness, that is grace, that is Jesus. When we think about heaven and, or when we think about judgment, we think about t- verses like, like this one. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping <clears throat> and gnashing of teeth. Or maybe this. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into their outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or maybe then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, what do all these verses even have in common besides the, you know, the explicit reality of eternal hell and punishment? Well, these are all direct quotes from Jesus himself, from the Gospels. And the reason I start here this morning is because we, Jesus believed in an eternal hell and, and, and the reality of judgment. And because he does, and because he speaks of it, we must as well. Charles Haddon Spurgeon puts it this way, think lightly of hell and you will think lightly of the cross. Hell, eternal judgment for Jesus in the Bible is a reality. <clears throat> Naturally, though, many questions <clears throat> begin to emerge as we come to texts like this. We begin to think, okay, who is this for? Am I on that path? How do I make sure I don't get on that path? How do I know that I won't be someone who falls away too? All right. And we hear, think of these haunting passages uh, in, in the New Testament by Jesus. who talks about the idea that, that there will be these, those days where you said that you knew me, but I never knew you. Like, we, get, we get a little scared when we hear stuff like that. How do we know? How do we make sure? And I think that our, our passage is very clear about this as it pertains to who this judgment is ultimately for. And you look there in, in verse 26, <clears throat> that's the first thing that we see is, is the who. It is, it is those who are sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Um, when I first read that, I thought, well, that still sounds like me. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, I believe, right? I, I, I do sin, and sometimes I even sin deliberately. What is it? Is this, this doesn't seem like it's really helpful. Uh, what does that really mean? Um, it's really more about who the author has in mind here as someone who has uh, heard the word of God, but then they have flat out rejected, not just Jesus, but his church and his doctrines, who has flat out rejected this truth and has actually, uh, in some senses, well, certainly um, become um, persecutors of that church, mockers of Jesus and his blood. John Calvin says it this way. Let's just sum it up here. The the apostle about this text, the apostle describes as sinners, not those who fall in any kind of sin. I hope I can do this right here. Okay. But those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. There is a great difference between individual lapses and universal desertion of the kind, which makes for a total falling away from the grace of Christ. I'm so thankful for French to English translators because that is the word of John Calvin and it is still rich to our ears 500 years later. What is he saying? There's a big difference between getting drunk again or lusting or struggling with self-righteous motives, right? Your sins and denouncing your membership, leaving the church or cursing and mocking Jesus and his followers. 
When, when the author says those who are deliberately sinning, those, that is who he is referring to. Another way to put it is the presence of anxiety about whether or not you are on the wrong side of judgment can actually be proof that you are not who they are referring to because that means you actually care about it. Let that be some relief. However, I don't want us to exhale just yet. What is it that actually warrants this judgment? Let's be very, very clear about that this morning. What is the basis for this judgment that the author to the Hebrews and Jesus earlier speaks of? And the basis for this judgment is denying grace. Let me say that again. The basis for judgment in all of Scripture is denying the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is because we often think of deserving judgment as being, well, I have messed up too many times. There's no way that I can be accepted back into God's likings or favor. I don't have a prayer, oftentimes we might even say. Instead, what the Bible is saying to you is that your deserving judgment is really hung upon the arrogance of not believing that you have a prayer. That is... Your judgment, the the idea of eternal judgment is the denial of grace in Scripture. The New Testament, especially our text this morning, is clearly saying to refuse this grace, the blood poured out, everything we've been talking about in previous chapters, is what makes you ripe for judgment. Notice the example the author gives there in verse 18 or verse 28. Those who set aside the law of Moses from Deuteronomy 17. And let me paraphrase Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 17 for us. Um, what, what that text basically is saying is that anyone living in a land or town that the Lord had given them, had given you. Um, and this person has intentionally, without repentance, has gone and he breaks the covenant He or she goes and breaks a covenant, which usually looked like idolatry of some form, but any one of the the sins there, the rules. And there are two to three witnesses of this deliberately breaking the covenant without repentance. Then that person is to be stoned to death, right? They get judgment. They they are murdered. Well, murdered is probably not the right word, but we'll go back to stoned to death. How about that? The judgments there are immediate. There is no mercy. And what the author of Hebrews is doing, he is saying that if that was the case for the old covenant, right, how much worse for this new and better covenant that I've been talking about over these past few chapters, right? In other words, how much worse punishment do you think, as he says in verse 29, will be deserved by the one who has spurned or trampled by foot? The son of God has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has, he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. See, the denial of this grace to you in Jesus' blood sacrifice is the basis for this merciless judgment. Why? Because after this grace, there is nothing else. This is it. This is as good as it gets. This is the better covenant. Right? That's his point. And that's the basis for judgment. It's just denying this grace that he has been talking about in these past several chapters. But let me stop here before moving on to the next point. It would be easy for us in this room to sort of look at this warning 
and to think about the context of these people that he is referring this to, those who have heard the word and have, have fallen away, those, those who have denied the grace of God. And for us to think, well, that's not me. I go to church, right? That is not me. I wouldn't do that. This is, I'm, I'm clearly okay. Let's move on to the next point. I want us to hold, hold, hold on to that for just a second because let me be clear, as I believe Jesus is clear to us, that when we ask the question, who does this? Who denies the grace of God? Christians deny the grace of God. How? Legalism, friends, for example, makes a living off of this. And I want us to look at this from from light that may be more familiar for us because I do not want this warning just to go right over our heads. Legalism really is, just to continue to use that as an example, is really believing that you can become pure and holy by perfecting the law. That's legalism. That you can get to a point in your life where you can do one or two things in your life really, really well, that you are doing it perfectly. And, you, and when we say that, what we really are saying is that I don't need the blood of Jesus for those things in my life. And in that moment, you are denying the grace of God for that thing. And when we begin to deny the blood of Jesus in those areas of our lives where we think we are perfecting the law, how is that not trampling the Son of God by foot? How is that not profaning the blood of the covenant or outraging the spirit of grace? Another example, consider the abstinence promise ring movement. Some of you all may be familiar with that. This was really big when I was in high school. But the idea of it is, as it says, it's, it, is a, it is a we are going to wait until marriage before we have sex. So abstinence, right? Pure, you're, you're going to be pure on your wedding day. I heard that a lot. Maybe you all heard that as well. And this had great intentions, awesome intentions, right? Yes, yes, let's, let's wait till marriage, okay? Um, you know, let, let's, that'll be a good thing. Well, is that what happened? Don't answer that. There were two camps at the end of this, right? There were those who made it and those who didn't, right? And as a self-righteous Christian, I made it, right? But you know what that made me feel? You know what I thought about myself? I thought, wow, I no longer need the blood of Jesus to be pure on my wedding night because I did it. How, do you see how subtle that is? Do you see how I am denying the grace of God in my life in that moment? Later, years later on the college campus, right, I would hear women just in tears over not being able to tell their dads on their wedding night that they weren't pure. Or they, yeah, yeah, that they weren't pure. That this ring was a lie. I heard that several times. And I don't know which is worse as I sat there listening to some of these women. For countless young women to have to abide the code of the promise ring. And to tell their dads or whoever that they needed to tell that they didn't make it. Is that worse than actually thinking you did make it. And showing up on your wedding night thinking that my holiness and my purity is because of me. That is denying the grace of God in your life. Beautiful was the day when someone told me, Ryan, nobody shows up pure and holy on their wedding night. They don't. We all find our purity and holiness through who? Through Jesus Christ. Does that mean we shouldn't wait? Absolutely not. That's a topic for another day. It's all about the why, though. Why are we waiting? 
Is it because we want to feel good about ourselves? Or is it because we long to serve this beautiful Savior? And you see the difference there. If you were to die tonight, I would ask, and St. Peter would look at you. I always love this illustration, right? Is St. Peter really going to, I don't know if he's going to be there or not. I don't know where that came from. <clears throat> and he, he would ask you, why should we let you in? Are you going to show him your promise ring? Or are you going to show and point to the blood of Jesus? Because one of those will get you to heaven and one of those friends will get you to hell. That is the honest truth. Again, I'm completely aware of the good intentions behind such movements. But what's the point? Anywhere in our lives, friends, where we are pointing to something that is not the blood of Jesus for our own purity and our holiness, that may not land us in eternal judgment, but it is certainly on the road to eternal judgment. And that is way too close for me. It is way too close for me. We should pause here. And not allow this warning just to shoot over our heads because we don't see ourselves leaving the church. We can be sitting here thinking about how righteous we are and how good we really are and have no idea where that is ultimately sending us. Friends, do not deny the grace of God in your life. It is to be accepted. It has been won for you, as we have said. And it is your only surety and confidence in life as we will see here moving forward. Let us move on to this next point. That is the reality of judgment. Let's look at the reality of grace. And this is really the rest of our sermon, the rest of this text. What does the author do um, with this letter as far as instructing his audience? What does he instruct them to do? Is he thinking that if I just scare them a little with this judgment talk, that they'll get back to believing? No, he actually does the opposite. Because look, you know this, fear is a terrible motivator. I can control you a little bit with fear, but I can never change your heart. It's the honest truth. What does he do? He actually does something very surprising. He he calls them to remember. You're thinking, okay, I don't know where the persecution is going to come from next. I've had my house looted and robbed, and you want me to remember? Remember what? Remember the grace of God in your life. Remember, as, as, he, as he uses the, the phrase, when you first saw the light, essentially. When that grace was tangible, is, is another way I'd like to put it. And he talks about remembering this, when, and he's referring to this specific struggle that they had in the name of Christ. And I love the fact that the word struggle in the Greek is <clears throat> the word athlesis, where we get the word athlete or athletic. And it really pictures a, a, a contest. Like they, they were in the midst of really wrestling and struggling and, and, dare I say, fighting back the resistance of this persecution. And he's like, remember that? Remember that struggle? Remember what was going on? And he lists these things in 33 and 34. He says, you face public ridicule and persecution. Right? When, when they weren't the object of abuse, he says that they felt the pain of others who were treated so badly, which made them feel like they were in the midst of that abuse. Many were arrested and they felt their suffering in the prisons with them. And lastly, many, if not all, were, their property was confiscated. And we, you know, that alone is, 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 is just terrible. Yet he's reminding them of their response in the midst of this, which was actually joy. <laughs> That's kind of paradoxical, isn't it? The, the joy, they, they joyfully accepted the plundering and they let them go. Why? Because they had something better. 
They had something far more valuable that couldn't be taken away from them. They were united to Jesus through faith by his grace. In other words, the author is pointing them back to remember when the doctrines of grace were so rich in their minds, that moment when you hear it for the first time and you realize what Jesus has done for you, that Jesus was judged on the cross for you. This is what motivated them to persevere. This was their confidence. They had the love and the affection of the creator of the universe. And nothing could take that away. When you know that grace, friends. When it comes home to live here. That Jesus took your ultimate judgment. You'll actually be able to have joy in the midst of suffering in the world's judgments. Think about that for a second. I don't know any other religion. I don't know any other way of life that actually may say that. But saying it and experiencing it are two different things. I mean, if I told you that there was a way to go to prison and have joy in the process, would you believe me? After Andy plays that music in the Shawshank Redemption, he gets a visit from the warden, doesn't he? And he gets sentenced to two weeks in the hole. And he comes back and he sits down at the cafeteria with his friends. And they're like, how in the world did you do that? You know, one day in the hole, that's solitary confinement. One day in the hole is like an eternity. How did you do two weeks? And you remember what he says? This is the easiest time I ever had. And they both start looking at him. What are you talking about? What do you mean? He's like, I had, I had that music, right? I had Mozart, he says. And they're like, we, they let you take, take that record player down there with you? <laughs> no, 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 no. I had it here. I had it here. And he has this wonderful line. So that's the beauty of music. Right? They can't get that from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? There are places in this world that aren't made of stone. That's, that there's something inside that they can't get to. That they can't touch. Friends, that's the grace of God. <laughs> That is, the, <clears throat> that is the knowledge of understanding the unconditional love of Jesus for you. His, his judgment that he took for you on the cross here, right here. And, what, what, and it's what enables you to find joy in the midst of your sufferings. And this is what the, the, the author of this book is getting them to do. Remember that. Remember it. The power of remembering the grace of God in our lives should always be a practice of the church and his people. And it is. But I'm a little concerned that it's it's a practice today that we don't give a lot of, uh, you know, credence to. And one of the reasons that is, is, is when we think about remembering, we think about looking back. And we are such a culture that says, no, 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 if you want to be if you want to be getting better, you got to be moving forward. Onward and upward. Name it and claim it. We don't have time to deal with the past. We don't have time to deal with, like, right? It's, it's sort of like if you're a senior in college getting ready for a final, you're going to go back to your fourth grade math you know, that you looked at. Depends on what college you go to, right? Fill in the blank there. No, right? You're not going to do that. But that's what we think about, though. When we think about looking back, when we think about remembering. In many ways, that type of thinking makes no sense to us in this fast-paced uh, the fast-pacedness of life. Christians feel guilty even for uh, admitting 
doubt or weakness or struggle today, let alone the idea of thinking that they have to remember past experiences in order to grow or move forward out of something that they're in the midst of. Do you know how many times, though, that the word remember is used in the Old Testament? It's used, depending on your translation, 130 times. You know why? Because that's the chorus line for Israel. It's to remember. It's constantly pointing back to something else. Right? What is he doing here for this audience? He's getting them to remember. Pointing them back to a place in their life where that grace was so tangible. Dare I say, pointing back to the blood of Christ on the cross for them. To remember what it is that he did for them. This is what he is getting them to do. This is what he is calling them. Uh, This is is his recipe, I should say, for getting them to persevere. Um, Is judgment real? I want to move on for the sake of time. It, It is, but so is grace. And and this third point, what do we do about this? He he really gives us three things of what of of how this grace begins to impact our lives so that we can actually hold strong, we can endure, uh, we can persevere. And that's where I want to move to here uh, in these last verses, verses thirty five to thirty nine. Um so what do we do? Well hopefully we choose grace and I don't I don't say that lightly. I really do like one of the blessings and mercies of a Judgment passage is for us to what? See the grace on the other side, right? And so I, want, I don't want to fall short of this. I want to actually, right, admonish, or is that the right word? I want to encourage you guys. I want to, if you haven't even, like, choose grace. Don't choose eternal judgment. Choose grace. There's a logic there that the author is pointing this to, thinking, well, why wouldn't we do this? And I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want to overlook that. So what do we do? We, hopefully we choose grace. And for those that do, we are asked to do the same thing, though, that these people are being asked to do in these verses by this author. And that is remember. Remember God's grace. Don't throw away your confidence. Endure. Have faith. All right? Those are three great buzzwords for Christians. What do they mean? This is the will of God for us. This is how the author is encouraging his audience to persevere through such circumstances. We are all waiting on the same thing. We are waiting on the return of Jesus. And the first thing that we have to do as we wait is recognize or look at our foundation. Do we have a firm foundation? Because a firm foundation is where you're going to get this confidence that he is talking about. It is, it is a reference to foundation. Don't throw that away. What is your foundation? He's been talking about it for the past two chapters, hasn't he? It's the blood of Jesus. It's the grace of God. That is your foundation. Any other foundation that is not the grace of God, which I would define as the unconditional love of Jesus, is never ever going to hold up in your life when persecution or suffering hits. It's just not, right? And, and we have this wonderful ability to make other things our foundations, right? Our spouses, our marriages, our families, our money, our job, right? When those things are the foundation in which your house is built upon, what happens when they go away? And you know the answer to that. And he's calling them to remember, first of all, what is your foundation? Your foundation is the grace of God itself. It is the blood of Jesus that is landed secure, what you are building your life upon. And so in, in, the, in these moments, in, in, this per, in this persecution, in these moments of just despair, we are called to look at our foundation. What is it? What are you standing on? 
And will it last? The second thing that he points us to is to endurance. And we tend to think of endurance as something that we are doing, that we are keeping up, so to speak, our ability to keep going on in the race. But that's not the idea here. See, endurance isn't you keeping up. It's you trusting the actual foundation that you're standing on. The the Greek word here isn't run harder. The Greek word is, are you ready for this? Wait. Abide. Long-suffering. I had to recheck that because it didn't sound right. What do you mean, wait? And don't you see the picture that he's given them? Here's your foundation. There's your confidence that you've been given in the grace of God. Your endurance is your ability just to trust this foundation that he's given you. To wait. And he gives us the wonderful words of Habakkuk. I, put, I think I put Haggai. That's one of those. Forget, forget Haggai. Let's talk about Habakkuk. Why does he quote Habakkuk in here? The prophet Habakkuk comes in in the middle of the fall. Or, um, uh, Israel had fallen to the Syrians and, ba- and, the, and the Babylonians are being raised up what, to come in and take out Judah to the south. And he's writing to these people and he's telling them about this, but what, the God, what God's going to do. He's going to actually raise up a pagan foreign army to come in as judgment upon Israel for their idolatry. Why is Hebrews referring to this event? This sounds awful. Let's forget about this. He's telling them this one to get his, his audience to think, okay, you think you have it bad right now? I want to t- remind you of a time when God raised up a foreign pagan army, a country to come in and take out his people for judgment. All right. A little perspective here. We're all doing a little bit better today all of a sudden. Right. But what did he tell? What did Haggai, I mean, what did Habakkuk tell his people? And that's what he quotes there for us. He says, wait, wait. For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Endurance. It will surely come. It will not delay for the righteous shall live by faith. Did those people get to see that vision fulfilled? No, 700 years later, did Jesus come? What's the point? Endurance, as one commentator puts it, is not the precondition. It's not the precondition for God making a promise to you. Endurance is the expression of confidence that he will keep the promise. That's what we got. You can rest a little bit right now, right? Like we have this wonderful confidence, this foundation in the blood of Jesus that has been given to us. And the way that we are called to, to endure this race is to wait to trust that promise. And lastly, he talks about living faithfully. And I want to leave this for next week, I'm sure, because we're moving into chapter 11 and the author is about to define this faith and to illustrate it for us in so many wonderful ways. But to live faithfully, I'll just say this, this much, is to look at the architect of this foundation. It is to stare off into the face of Jesus where the walls begin to fall away. You see what he wants you to do? It doesn't matter what joys or what, what sorrows are going through in your life. You've been given this confidence, this foundation of, that is the blood of Jesus for you. It is, it is the, 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 and the expression of, of, of how or that the expression of that confidence shows itself in endurance by trusting in the promises that he's made to you. 
And then as we set sail, we're not to look at ourselves or look at our circumstances around us because we are so caught up in the architect of this whole thing, Jesus himself, that as we stare at him, everything else just seems to disappear. And I want to be careful. I'm not objectifying that experience. I'm not saying this is the one you have to have. Right? But this is the one that gets us there. And it looks like so many different things for us in our lives. But mostly it looks like us remembering to go back and check that foundation in the first place. To go back and recognize that the endurance isn't about us making good on the promises. It's about trusting the promises that God's already made. Just like Habakkuk was saying. And it's about looking faithfully into the eyes of Jesus. Knowing that one day I will see you face to face. And that is enough for me. That is enough to the answer to the question. Well, let me say this. This is where the author is saying to his audience, don't avoid hell for fear of its misery. Don't avoid hell because grace is so beautiful and plenteous that you cannot look away. That's, that's what he wants for them. And that's what he wants for us this morning. The answer to the question, do you want heaven or hell is answered there. Do you want Jesus or not? I'll conclude with this. Centuries ago, St. Augustine wrote a sermon entitled, On the Pure Love of God. And in the sermon, he images God coming to you with a question. He says, suppose God offers you a deal. I will give you anything you want. You can possess the whole world. Nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be a sin. Nothing forbidden. You will never die. You'll never have pain, never have anything you, or, 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 yeah, never die, never have pain, never have anything you do not want and always have anything you, you want. Sorry. <laughs> you will never die or have pain and everything that you want you can have. That's what he says. Except for just one thing. You will never see the face of Jesus. Would you take the deal? Would you give up the world and all possible worlds just to have God? And then Augustine asked this question. Did a chill arise in your heart when you heard the words, you will never see my face? See, that chill, he says, is the most precious thing in you. Because it is the true north that directs you to your true purpose, which is intimate union with God. Better than all possible worlds and all possible powers is the promise of having God himself. Do you want that? Do you want that? Do you want this Jesus because he's yours and he gives himself away unconditionally? May we never throw that away. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in the book of Hebrews and your mercy to not withhold the promises of judgment for those who deny your grace. That we would see that reality. We'd see, we'd see it and it would, it would affect us in so many ways, but mainly it would affect us in a way of being able to see how much more lovely and beautiful your grace is to us. Would we want that? Would we be a church that wants that? Would we be a place that can't get enough of learning and understanding what it means to abide in that love? Would we be quick 
to lovingly call people to remember and allow people into our lives to call us to remember those times when your grace was so tangible to us despite the circumstances going on in our, in our lives. That we may be encouraged again and recognize the foundations and the endurance of that foundation that it rests in your promises alone. And may we continue to look in that way at the face of Jesus. May that be the way that we are taken out of our circumstances. So, that, so much so that the walls simply just fall away. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.